is Existential, a podcast aimed at reminding you that it's okay to be human. We listen to human stories and human experiences, and we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. podcast is we had a new friend from the Seattle area who is with us her name is Tiffany Bloom and she is a writer speaker um, mom an all-around incredible person who's doing some really great work around purity culture and rape culture and wrote a new book called pray tell just had did you just have a pray tell conference too Tiffany I did yeah summit yeah, yeah, yeah. Summit. How, how was that well, it actually, before you get into that, just tell us how you're doing. I don't want to jump into your work first. <laughs> tell us, tell us how you're doing. Like, how you doing with like all the COVID stuff, with family? I mean, what 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 is happening in your life? And let us get to know like you a little bit because we're new friends, and so yeah, know, I, I want well, my new as, friends to meet my new friend. Come on, as Corey just said, I'm a wife, a mom, author, speaker, and COVID has been. Um, has been pretty terrible. It's uh, I, I speak for a living, and so not getting to travel and help uh, pay my grocery bill is difficult. And um, it's very difficult. To, I'm just going to be very honest. It's very difficult to launch a book during a pandemic because, again, you sell books at speaking engagements. Um, exactly. exactly. And, uh, and also, I lead uh, a women's gathering here in the Seattle area where we gather, we meet at a fine dining restaurant, and the chef prepares all of our food and matches the wine, and then I speak. And it started with, like, 12 gals, and we serve about 500 women a year. And that came to a grinding halt because communal dining is not really a thing anymore. <laughs> not, not yet. Um, and I've got two boys. I have a 10-year-old and a 6-year-old, and my oldest um, – He's got some unique challenges, some cognitive challenges. So it's not having the resources that we would normally have um, has has been challenging. But we're we're getting there. We're getting there. Mm. I'm, I feel like there's there's hope and vision and sunshine at the end of this tunnel. I hope so. I mean, you know, everybody I meet now is getting has the vaccine. I know most of those people are white, but still, the vaccine is making its way through the country, and hopefully, that like you know enables us to go back outside. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, truly. Yeah, for sure. To share with people. So uh, I'm I'm fascinated with your work because um, it is it is very powerfully challenging norms and status quo, which is what we love here at Existential. So um, you know, no, I know a lot of your work culminated in a book, which we'll get to. But could you just tell us a little bit about your journey that led to you sort of standing toe to toe with male dominant patriarchy, especially within the evangelical space. Yeah. I just first want to say for those listening, if you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three, I'm very diplomatic and agreeable. So (laughs) taking on like white toxic male church culture was never something on my list of things to do. I kind of fell into this. I'm like the little sister that they never thought would speak up of what really happened. You're doing eight shit right now. This is, this I is am, and I am. Yeah. I'm not an eight, and I'm doing eight work, and I go to a nine in stress, which is just like, yep, default to what everybody else wants to do. So it's a, it's definitely pulling out some uh, untapped strength that I didn't know yeah. I had. Um, yeah. So for me, listeners, you can't see me, but I am Indian. I moved to the states when I was two. I was adopted. And grew up in a rural white area. Didn't meet another person of color until I was in middle school. Um, had a really positive church experience in my youth, mm-hmm. um, which also was at the same time of the Twin Towers falling. And I am a very light-skinned Indian woman. And so Arab appearing, this this confusion and disdain I had for my own mm-hmm. skin and story 
was now matched by exterior voices. I remember, Corey, I was working in an old folks home and they refused to let me serve them their pudding and mango juice because they thought I was going to try to kill them. So I lost my job. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm like in high school. And so it was just a, it was a really stressful time. Just to, you know, as if high school in the nineties and early two thousands wasn't hard enough. (laughs) Yeah. And you're you're wielding dangerous pudding and juice. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. Um, but it really, uh, I, I was telling Corey, I didn't feel Indian in America. I didn't have the cultural responses, the expectations that I couldn't meet for other people, even just the expectation, you know, Indians in America make up the top 1% of income earners. They are in prestigious jobs, especially in tech and medical field due to the seventies when there was a medical shortage here in the States. They um, had a lot of Indian immigrants come in, of course, in the tech boom, another wave of uh, Indian immigrants. So um, I fit neither of those categories and I was not raised with money at all. So it was, um, it was a, it was like this, dare I say, I hope this is okay to say, but a very, <laughs> cut this if you have to, <laughs> but a very white trash, uh, experience growing up, mm. but still having the responses and the hate rhetoric of being Indian. So it was a, it was a mm. unique South Asian experience. Mm. Um, but again, I, I really did find a home in Jesus and who Jesus was, was more than I could have ever dreamed. and. He's never failed me. And when I see and examine how Jesus treated women, especially low-class minority women, I will bet my life on that. I will bet my life on who he is, how he treated women, his egalitarian response, and the way he upheld, unleashed, protected women's bodies and reputations, and of course, longed for their salvation. But that wasn't what he did first. He protected their reputation and their bodies. And that that still speaks to me. And it's what I, the cornerstone of my work. So I operate at the intersection of justice and women. That is my, that's my camp. That's my place. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, unfortunately, but growing up in purity culture, there's some good I gleaned of what to look for in a potential mate, um, you know, the dangers of por- porn to the prefrontal cortex, all those things. But there was a lot I gleaned as a 13 and a 14 year old feeling that the onus was on me to escape abusive power or I, I had the power to lure men. And if something bad happened, it was inherently my fault. Um, mm-hmm. That'll mess a girl up. And it wasn't on boys or men to behave justly. And so believing that if something bad happened, I did something to deserve it, that, that rape culture, purity culture rhetoric that is identical, uh, same side of the coin, um, was deeply embedded into me. So I took that into the workforce as an adult. And so when somebody would say, girl, nobody would listen to you unless you were so beautiful or you're wearing that dress today. So when those things were said to me, I felt it, I, I shouldn't have worn this dress today. This is on me. What was I thinking wearing these hoops today? Or I shouldn't have worn such a bold lipstick or I shouldn't have spoke like I did. Or if somebody double took at me, it was my fault. I did something to deserve this. And so the, it really, really came to a head when I discovered information of the very worst kind. And I spoke truth to power and discovered that I was disposable. And the man who abused his power at a woman's expense was seen as indispensable. So here I was left to grapple with the societal, spiritual, financial, and professional ramifications of speaking up and losing everything I held dear in the process. Yeah. So much was said. Okay. And I'm like, I want to, I want to come back to different things. I think I'm going to follow the thread in my head, which I normally do in these conversations when you talked about like feeling the like onus of mm-hmm. of having a man say something to you or look at you in some type of way that's like just gross 
Yeah. I, it reminded me of like this, as many things do this episode of The Office, when like I think Pam had on like some shirt that like was revealing and somebody mentioned it probably uh, freaking uh, Michael. Or, Dwight, Michael, or, yep. uh, yeah. Yeah, one, one, of, one of the dummies in there. And like, mm-hmm. uh, which by the way, side note, if you've ever seen news, was not the the Apple was on Apple TV with Jennifer <gasps> and, and loved yeah. loved. What, what was it called? What was it called again? I forgot the name of it. The Morning uh, Show. The Morning Show. Yeah. Like if you watch Steve Carell in the Morning Show, and then like go back and watch The Office, you're like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you're just like, wait a minute. The all Office he... could never happen today. No, you, we know that, right? Like right. that could exactly. never, that never fly. But you're like, all he did in the, in in Morning News was just like be himself serious. You know, because you go back and like, oh, but like, it's interesting to me to see like that even even when you're depicting office situations in humor, Pam felt like, well, I should cover up. Yeah. Because my reaction to someone being inappropriate to me is for me to carry the burden of that and not put that burden back where it belongs. That's right. And I love that you just spoke to that. And it it feels so like countercultural, which is, which is a part of what we're entangled in. Yes. Yeah. That Greco Roman influence that is still alive and well today, believing that women are deformed men, a woman's body is inherently evil and women are untrustworthy. Who they are in themselves is dangerous and will cause men to catch on fire. And if their job is to either subjugate or silence or slander women. Those are your options. And so many boys, so many boys, they play into that. And as early as middle school, I mean, research shows that it's very difficult to find a girl in middle school who hasn't been harassed. And why do boys do it? To show I'm a man and I can be in control of you. And they're 13 years old. Mm. Wow. Like, so, okay. I'm, I'm interested because you, you very clearly articulated that you view uh, the Christian faith through the lens of of womanhood, right? And and that, that that's that's what you bring to um, reading of the Bible, listening to, to text, which I think is fascinating and awesome. So I had some, I had a conversation with a friend of mine not too long ago that actually will probably will you folks you'll hear on the podcast soon about ways in which Jesus comes off as we read him as oppressive to women at mm. times. Um, certainly if, if, and if we don't zoom in on Jesus, you can look at the Bible as a whole and go starting with the sexual ethic that was all about women being property and, and women could be raped as long as, as long as they weren't married, you could do what you wanted to. Mm-hmm. And you, if, if it was too bad, you just had to pay a fine. Yeah. Like, as you read that, uh, reading that with your, um, work and your way of seeing the world, how do you grapple with all of that? How do you wrestle with that? How do you like, how do you handle all of those ideas when you look at the Christian faith and, and the Bible particularly? Yeah. I think, first of all, we have to look at translations and who was translating the Bible. We're talking about men. Men shaped what we consider the text today. And also, you know, various translations changed words to just brothers versus men and women. Um, they, they've taken out women. You know, many translations of the Bible still have uh, Junius instead of Junia, talking about a woman who was empowered. So we have to think of how it's been in human hands for thousands of years and how men would find it advantageous to subjugate women by altering the text for their benefit and it's in them using that thus saith the Lord, this is what it is. So I think that we have got to remember that men, particularly white religious scholars, 
are applying a revisionist history to Jesus, mm. and it has caused such great harm. And to know that there were so many more women in that time, we just get a few, what, maybe 30, 40 in the text that we can look at and see and learn from their experiences. And I think especially when you look at the Old Testament, this is an example of what not to do. This isn't to be praised. You look at Genesis 1 and the mutuality and reciprocity and equality, and then the fall, that's an example of domestic violence, that the man will lord over the woman and her desire will be for him. That's a, that, in my opinion, that's a, that is domestic violence. And then to move forward, and then you see the, the, the life of Jesus, and when you excavate his examples with women, of course there's going to be, why was he harsh in his tone? Why, why would he send this woman away? Why would he speak so harshly? But we also, are, we don't understand Samaritan or Greek or Roman text in a way that people would communicate and talk to each other. But when you get to the end of it and you see how he, and <laughs> the entire message of the resurrection was on a woman's shoulders. He specifically waited for men to leave in the first century where women held no power in the courts. They were seen as capable of only lying for personal gain or for fear of punishment. So he intentionally left this entire message on a woman's shoulders after two disciples had left the tomb. Mm. It just is, it just, I can't deny that although I might not understand the full context of his conversations because I wasn't there, I can see the message and I can see the thread of just, I mean, progressive doesn't even do it justice of how ahead of his time he was to bring restoration and move that moral arc of the universe toward justice. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple of uh, months ago, there was a senator who prayed at the end of his prayer. He said, amen and a woman. And a bunch of Christians were like, you know, all mad about it. Yeah. Um, I will frequently, as I'm if I'm saying the Lord's prayer, there are times I say our father, other times I say our mother. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, um, as you, again, with the lens that you bring to your faith, um, do you think about God in gendered ways? Uh, or do you, you know, how, how do you view God? Again, knowing what you just said, that like much of what we've learned about God has been filtered through the lens of patriarchy and, ma- and male-dominant yeah. society where our entire world bends its will towards manhood yeah um how do you view the divine yeah oh what a great question thank you for asking um i think growing up in my formative years it was very traditional evangelical white church of what you think of father god and daddy and he's gonna be the daddy didn't have you know all these you know narratives that we get but i think as an adult the more i understand of the divine to to reduce him to a gender is Mm -hmm. just almost insulting, to be honest with you. I hope that's okay to say. I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. So for me, um, I love Scott Erickson's work around this. He often calls in his devotionals and in Instagram, God it. Um, for this very reason, it's just, it's so much more grand and majestic. I think God is greater than we give him credit for, and I just can't reduce him. And I do believe that he has both, you know, traditionally female and male attributes, but I think it's so much greater. And it can be reductive to limit him to male pronouns and male attributes and male characteristics. Yeah. And yet at the same time, it's really hard to like, you know, to even not refer because we have to use reference. And I think sometimes when when we're talking about God, knowing that like there are still folks out there who it's jarring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I'm, and I'm hearing in you a, 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 I think you have more proximity to, um, evangelicals, like 
because uh, I, I sometimes I, when I'm hearing you talk, I'm like I'm hearing you like trying, I think, to be gracious as you're communicating. Um, there's been a lot of distancing from evangelicals with Trump and everything yeah. else that happened. How have you managed that? Like, are you, you sound like you're, like you're, again, very gracious towards um, Christians that aren't necessarily very gracious towards uh, anyone who, who decides to be progressive in their ideas about faith in God. Yeah, I, I think that's my strength. Um, I think it goes back to our, our, our first discussion of, <laughs> you know, immigrant woman of color contorting herself to belong. And I think that subconscious, unconscious reasoning is still bled into much, many different areas of my life. But I also believe it's valuable because I know they're listening. And if I can bring them along on the journey, and if I can invite them to think differently, then I'm going to keep that door open. Mm. Um, and I think it's valuable to, to value all sides and, and not their beliefs when they hurt and harm. Hell mm. to the no. But I, um, no, 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 no. But I do think that, um, I think that there has to be education. And if I'm provided proximity to them, I'm going to use that platform to educate. Mm. Um, <laughs> I remember I was speaking at, um, at a church in Macon, Georgia, the same weekend that Trump was there for a rally. Wow. And he was already, he was already president, but, um, and I was just worried I wasn't going to get to the airport back on time. Cause I'm like, I will not miss my flight due to Donald Trump. No way, no how. <laughs> and, um, you know, a lot of MAGA hats in the audience and I'm talking about wow. the immigrant experience and yeah, a gospel response to immigration and all of these things. And just having these grown men when their MAGA hats just weep in front of me and they're like, I'm so sorry. I got to, I've gotten this wrong. What can I, I just, I can't believe I've gotten this wrong and I've hurt people like you. Like I can't believe. Yeah. I was was fully expecting to hear you say that they started booing and throwing like lettuce (laughs) like cabbage on the stage. Cabbage. Yep. Cabbage. Cabbage would hurt by the way. Those things are like, you know when cabbage is you're like, oh, a dollar nine nine a pound, that's fine. I can afford this. And then you're like, this cabbage was seven dollars because it's so damn heavy. (laughs) That's amazing. That wasn't worth it for my yakisobi. Anyway, you saw like a you saw a real like transformation from Megan folks. I saw a moment. A I saw a moment of, of recognition yeah. that um, I'd love to, I'd love to think he was transformed. Yeah, <laughs> I would yeah, love yeah. to think I have that kind of power. Um, <laughs> but I, but I certainly saw a moment where he me. was willing to say like, I've gotten this wrong and mm-hmm. I can't, he, he, we have to humanize people. We have to humanize people and think, and, and as long as we label them, we're going to just, we're going to, dig deeper into our stereotypes and when we can stereotypes do a lot of harm. And, and it's one of the reasons I think women, especially women of color have suffered so much with imbalances of power because stereotypes are upheld by both magistrates, ministers, counselors. Um, it's a, it's pretty dangerous. Yeah. I mean, I think we all kind of, once the, once the um, cast or the, the role is set, you know, the trope is there. I think mm-hmm. that we all fall into it. Sometimes we fall into expecting another person to fulfill the role that like our society has normalized for them. And then mm-hmm. other times we just naturally fall into that role. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about when you talk about uh, women in a patriarchal society that will feel that burden to go, oh, you treated me some sort of way. So now I am responsible for that because I've, yes. I'm now filling a role 
that's been predetermined by how society is oriented that I just naturally fall into. And it's amazing how, 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 how that works, how that happens. I, I want to ask you something else though, that like you said something and, and, and I think you're really familiar with this. And as you were saying, I'm like, man, I want to slow down and I want to really dig into this, this idea that rape culture and purity culture are the same because that may be new to a lot of folks who are listening. So could you just spend some time like really unpacking that for us to help us understand like what you mean when you say that? Yeah. So rape culture asks the question, what were you wearing? Where were you? What were you drinking? What did you do? Really, the implicit belief is what did you do to deserve this? Because it's easier to believe that one person did something to deserve harm than to re-architect and address the system that created this complicit behavior. And also, it is an act of self-preservation, believing because if this person didn't do anything to deserve what happened to them, then it could happen to me. It's that just world hypothesis, believing that everybody gets what's coming to them and they did something to invite it. Now, purity culture, which arose um, late 80s, early 90s after the sexual revolution was, and has obviously roots, and not obviously, excuse me, has roots in the Southern Baptist Convention, (laughs) was this idea that we need to get this on lock. Then you you see the rise of abstinence training. You see this belief that it is on women to control a men's desire because they're insatiable beasts, incapable of controlling their bodies and their thoughts and their desires. And if they do, they'll be rewarded in marriage with a quote unquote smoking hot wife. So women, I mean, girls as young as 13 or 14, they're taught it's on you to control men with how you act and operate in the world. And then once you are married, you are now exterior validation akin to a four by four or a sports car or a Mm -hmm. shiny gun or a Harley. Mm -hmm. You're now proof that he's worthy and that he is blessed by God. So there's just this, it's subjugation all around. Both Mm -hmm. treat women as something to be conquered, pursued. You know, we, it's, it's one of them is benevolent sexism. The other is outright subjugation, but both accomplish the same thing that women are to be harnessed. Women are to be had. And so this, this rise in purity culture, we see, you know, research shows that many women who grew up in the purity culture movement have the same symptoms of sexual abuse. They're dealing with the same outcomes of sexual abuse and nobody's laid a hand on them because this belief and shame and guilt that was placed on them was so severe that they had the same body and mental response as those who had been taken advantage of. So it really is, um, it's very dangerous. It's very dangerous. And I'm not saying that I didn't glean anything from the, from the purity culture movement, you know, what to look for in a maid and porn and, you know, what the dangers of porn and all that stuff. But, but it did so much damage that many women taken to the workforce in an adult life, believing again, that if something at the water cooler in the boardroom happens, they did something to deserve it. Again, the onus on them being to escape abuse of power more than on men to behave justly. Wow. And so all of this experience and all these things, these ideas that you're sharing with us now, like, um, I imagine are in the book, pray tell, um, And it's not, the book's not out yet, right? It's, it's, it's out. Yeah. It's out released, it's, today's a week, actually. It's March 16th. It came out. Oh, dang. So, all right. So talk us through the process of writing the book. Like what made you decide you needed to write it? What, like what's going into it? I know, I know, you know, I've started writing a book probably a year and a half ago and I'm, you know, still quote air quote writing a book now, but I know how much goes into it emotionally, yeah. right? You start revisiting yeah. stories and things that happen. So talk us through that process of like what you were feeling and, and, and sections of the book that were particularly difficult for you to wrestle through and to put down on paper. 
Yeah. I think once I realized that this idea for a book was beyond an op-ed, it was beyond 1,500, 2,000 words, I knew, I'm like, can I stretch this from 2,000 to 50,000 and Mm -hmm. really unpack why women are treated the way they are? And I'm a natural researcher. That's how I'm bent. My StrengthsFinder 2.0 researcher and learner is one of my top strengths. And um, I very much enjoyed, you know, uncovering the untold parts of Bill and Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and Anita Hill and, um, you know, medieval examples, biblical examples, but mostly modern history. R. Kelly, Harvey Weinstein, um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, all of these, all of these stories that we've heard, and we've heard the dominant narratives telling of them. I wanted mm-hmm. to be able to provide a lens, an intersectional lens that we could all read and journey and see how it is always benefited powerful to subjugate and silence women. It's financially advantageous. It's professionally advantageous. And they're relying on the culture being groomed to demonize women. So uh, it was an outrageously demanding right of me because of the emotion of my own experience and as a bystander witnessing misconduct, but also knowing that my ashes weren't to be kept to myself of all that had burned in me. I wanted to share those with others and I I believed that good could come from it. And so did my agent. So (laughs) well on my way, I took me about four months of research and then six months of writing, um, -hmm. to, to pull it all together. And then I had some extensive rewrites about, uh, about 25% of the book had to be rewritten just due to some legal issues. So, um, I'm the irony of me telling the truth and why women need to tell the truth, but having legal parameters to do so. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. What, yeah. what are you most, uh, I, I want to say proud of about the book? Like what, what is it? Mm. What, what about the book gives you the most life to like, think I shared that with the world. Yeah. I think vulnerability begets vulnerability and courage begets courage. So I think for me, what I'm most proud of is not only, you know, the moment you write that last line, um, I burst into tears. I also had, I think I'm, I'm confident I had the COVID I'm confident I had 102 fever and couldn't smell anything and had shortness of breath. And I'm like finishing, yeah, you know, word like 50,000. So it was, yeah. uh, it was, uh, it was demanding in many ways, but, um, I think now what I'm most proud of is getting these emails and these DMS of women saying, I read your book, couldn't put it down, which I don't think it's a page turner. So that was a surprise in itself. Mm. And, um, and saying, you know, I told my mom what happened to me in high school and now we're pressing charges against my high school principal or another woman saying, I work in a fast food restaurant and I can't take it anymore. And your book gave me vernacular to describe my experience because I'm only being told what's happened to me versus being able to have my own language for it. And now I told my boss and she's willing to talk through the stuff. And I was literally able to show her here, here's what I mean. And here's the outcome and here's the research that supports it. And, and she's like, my boss read it and she's willing to make these changes. And she's like, I feel like I can keep my job. So stories like that um, have become what I'm proud of knowing that other people are feeling empowered and able to process their own stories that have happened 20, 30, even 10 years ago. Mm. So this brings up a really uh, interesting tension. And like, I, I feel myself wading out into like deeper waters. Like I, and now, now my head, the song oceans is playing, you know, <laughs> <laughs> take me deeper than my feet, whatever wander right now. I've got, um, oh. I just like, there is this uh, tension that exists, but I, I remember when I first started like, hashtag and believe women and like 
men would come forward and say, I had a situation where I was accused of yada, yada, yada. It wasn't true. Um, and I think, I don't know if it was before we started, like came on the air or like during that you talked about like women having nothing to gain yeah. by coming forward. Right. So I, how do we live in this tension where we don't actually believe any person just like because they said it without some sort of like Evidence. credibility, whatever, mm -hmm. but also managing what I believe to be true, that the world is better when we give women the benefit of the doubt? Oh, such a good question. Um, I think first, we just got to provide some context here. Number one, the amount of women who lie about these situations, abuse of power at her expense is around 1%. Mm -hmm. 1% research shows. Number two, often we hold up a man's accusations over, a, excuse me, a man's accolades over a woman's accusations. Jesus. We give women the label of guilty until proven innocent. And we flip-flop that and give men often this victimhood because we're watching their trauma and their sorrow play on public. And if the, if the experience that this woman has experienced in the past, we didn't see that, we didn't witness that, we don't know her, but we're watching a beloved figure or perhaps a friend or a boss, you know, we're watching his sorrow. And if he's good at what he's doing, he's li likely very narcissistic and employing those grooming tendencies to bend to his belief and version of the events. And even women bending to those version of events, because I think there's a particular harm when women defend men. Um, wow. And wow. so, you know, this, this understanding of believe women and my whole final chapters actually addresses this whole conversation. Um, so I'm so glad you asked it. Um, <laughs> is this idea that when we say believe women, we're not saying believe women without credibility or evidence. We're saying give women the same platform and stage and room in your brain to believe her version of events as you do one man. Because what we do in both sacred and secular culture is we expect many women to come forward and, and, and share their harm and share their scars. And until there's many, we won't take action because we'll reduce it to he said, she said. Mm. And until many women come forward, and we cannot wait till more lives have been destroyed, till the collateral damage reaches a breaking point that we deem sufficient mm -hmm. to listen to women share the harm. And I mean, uh, Time's Up movement that provides legal aid to women who are speaking up against their bosses, you know, everything from McDonald's to corporate America. Um, they'll often say women, when they speak up, they're unemployable for the rest of their lives. And men are forgiven and they will carry on. They'll get another job because they've still got the skills and abilities um, that has been provided for them and they'll be just fine. But these women, we'd love to think like, oh, as a man, how do I, how do I navigate this? What am I going to do? Instead of living in that fear, perhaps live in the tension of thinking this could happen, but instead of allowing myself to dwell on that, how can I leverage my position and my platform to ensure there are more equitable and reciprocal spaces for men and women? How can I consider my size, physical size, my class, my resources, my, gen, my, my race to enable other women to have a space at the table? Because it's not going to be on women to solve this issue. It's going to be on men and women working together. Oh, for sure. hundred percent. I love how you, how you spoke to that. Uh, it resonates with me. Um, that like the, you know, we tend to see pendulum swing, you know, and we go like, oh, we were to this. So now let's swing all the way over to this. And the next generation starts going, no, that was wrong. So, so and, and I think that's natural, right? I think that just yeah. is, is a thing that happens, but I do love the, um, the idea that 
you know, it is it is a better world when we start looking at women and start looking at the data, especially I've heard that data before that 1% of them come out to be dishonest and like 1% yeah. <laughs> of all the claims. And that 1% is enough to make, make us go, <laughs> well, I don't know that we can do <laughs> So I want to ask you one more thing. And, um, cause I'm watching like your facial expression. I'm watching like how you talk about these things and no, the, with the amount that I talk about, you know, anti-blackness and white supremacy, like I've, I can sometimes be very lighthearted about it, but other times I'm like furious, right? There are things that like make me angry enough that I'm really shocked I've never dropped an F-bomb on any of my broadcasts, right? But like, is that is there that for you? Like, or, or moments like that for you where you feel yourself like, like going from the, hey, I'm I'm an Enneagram 3 and, I, and I'm, I'm doing this work because it's important and I do it with joy to like, no, nah, I'm ready to like, I really am ready to wield some dangerous juice and, <laughs> and burn it down. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was in my own experience. I felt like when I sought help to those who were charged with providing compassion, care and redress, I was, I bled to death in front of them with no, <laughs> no salve or bandages for my wounds. And so I think my, my compassion is high because as a woman who was of high character in a position of power to be treated like that was outrageous and uncalled for. And so I think I'm angry to the point that I have wielded that anger and let it burn down to solid gold that I can use it for good. Mm. <laughs> but I'm, I mean, yeah, for sure. I'm mad as hell. And I, and I think just even hearing the stories that I hear, because now people, now that I've written this and, and this is my life's work, People mm-hmm. want to share their experiences with me all the time. And there's some secondhand trauma to that. Um, yeah. You know, you're opening up social media and you've got 50 messages and they're all like, make you want to be in the fetal position. Um, mm-hmm. And, and then at the same time, I'm like, I'm raising boys, I'm raising men. Nine of my, you know, neither of my kids are one of my sons. He's adopted from Uganda. Um, and the other one is mixed race. And so I'm like, I'm also raising men of color in this world too. So I'm, you know, there's that both and of like, I'm mad as hell and I'm angry and I want to bring resolve to this. And I want us to look at this differently. And I also want us to architect and parent and shepherd our sons to be part of the answer. So again, I think I've, I've, (laughs) I've, I've channeled the anger in such a fashion (laughs) that I feel like I can use it to to bring some good. And, and again, a three, I'm diplomatic at heart. So yeah. I am. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you are raising sons. And, and I think this is, it's, you know, I think I said last question with, you know, I, I think I, I lied about that. Um, <laughs> like I, I want to ask you on the heels of that, cause it was already sort of circling in my brain. What is it that makes a man safe for women in this in this way like what I, I, and the reason i asked that I, I was recently i feel very blessed and feel somewhat of responsibility even i was mentioned in a tweet of course it's by another dude but i was mentioned in a tweet of like list some men who are, who are safe places for women like what does it mean for a man to be safe for women i think we can boil this down to empathy. Honestly, I think empathy, being able to see somebody else's point of view, being able to grieve with somebody else with what they've gone through in my own journey. When I discovered this information, um, of misconduct, I called 
Um, most of my mentors have been men in my life and they have not exploited my loyalty or my body or my reputation or my space. Mm. And I called, I called them and I think those are some keys right there, by the way, of how to be a safe person. Mm. But I called him and and I shared and he didn't say, you know, you got to do something about this. He said, we've got to do something about this. He inserted himself as part of the solution. And I, that's all we're asking. We're just asking for empathy. We're asking for humility to not, and to deal with your own emotions. <laughs> um, Mr. Rogers said it best. Emotion, feelings are mentionable and manageable. And I think in this day and age where so much exterior validation is what men are seeking, why do you think gun sales are up so much? Like this is the, the inner work that hasn't happened in men is being seen in their purchases because again it's this exterior validation of this makes me a man rather than the inner work of wholeness and healing and being okay with yourself and who you go to sleep with at night your own brain and then being able to share that empathy with others until there's empathy for themselves and their own journey how could we even expect men how could we even expect men to be empathetic toward women i think um liz plank she writes for CNBC and she is culture commentator, but she is a gender scholar and she wrote a book called for the love of men. I highly recommend it. Mm. Um, and just talking about how we have shaped and formed men in such a way that completely isolates them from their emotions and their body to the point that we see the acceptance of this boys will be boys attitude in life because we are the ones who separated as culture. We've separated their emotions and their body for so long, starting so young, and to now integrate those and have them be empathetic towards women, that's a tall order. So it really does take um, instruction so young. I, I often talk about, for, for boys and girls, this idea that you do not get to dominate someone else's body, their time, their space. Wow. And teaching nonverbal cues to a five-year-old before they're 25 and we have the Aziz Ansari situation. And he's like, I didn't read the cues. And you're like, she was saying no without saying no, because women are taught to be nice at the expense of being kind. Mm. And so if we can just, we can have this understanding that boundaries are not to be bent and boundaries aren't mean. Boundaries are safe for everyone. Wow. Tiffany, thanks so much for um, this time, man. This has been great and eye-opening and um, I, I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on your book. Um, I want to encourage everybody out there to um, to to get it. I don't, you know, I don't I don't know the places that are socially uh, conscious to get it from now. I know there was some Amazon stuff going on, so I don't know. Wherever you can get the book and feel good about getting it, you can get it. Uh, Tiffany, I'll share like all of your socials and ways that people can stay in touch with you. Really, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks, Craig. All right, folks, that was Tiffany Bloom, and what an incredible, incredible person and work she's doing. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening to the podcast. Shout out to the folks over at Full Town. You know who you are. And I'd like to thank all of you for helping us to contend for a better world, one conversation at a time. 